Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network Podcast. A podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Episode of the Coaches Network. I'm Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by my co-host as usual, Ben. How's it going, Ben? All good. Ready for an insightful chat. Brilliant. And today we've got a very special guest with us today, um, Ian Barker. Ian Barker is a director of coach education at United Soccer Coaches. It's based over in the United States. Um, Ian is originally from the UK, um, and he will tell us a lot more about that journey over to the States, I'm sure. Um, how are you, Ian? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it because we missed each other last week, so it's, it's nice to get together this week. Definitely. Um, Ian, I'm not going to waste any time. I just want to get straight into it. So you mind just telling us how your coaching journey started and, you know, and hopefully that will lead us to where you got to today? Yeah, so um, quite, quite straightforward. Um, college, playing football in college in Coventry at the University of Warwick in the uh, early 80s, mid-80s. And I um, really enjoyed playing. And there was a lot of students on the campus that were PE students that played football with us. I was not a PE student. Um, but as a, as a senior member of the college team, we brought a FA coaching badge onto campus. Um, and so we as the players, and a lot of them, like I said, were PE students, we took the coaching badge. And I quite enjoyed it. And obviously, you're more interested in your playing at that point. But um, found that I had a, a little bit more of a vocation for that than being a decent player. Um, so then an opportunity uh, afforded itself to come over to the States, where in the States, coaching at all levels, grassroots up, can be a, can be a career. So in the, in the late 80s in England, it would have been very difficult for me to break into football without a professional background and, and make a meaningful go of it. But that was available to me in the States. So I came over to the States in 87 um, and have been coaching in America ever since. Yeah, just on that, like, how did that look? Like, how did that opportunity actually arise? Because I, I know a few of the listeners that are based in the UK, they'll be interested to know, like, how can they make their way over to the US um, for such opportunity? Yeah, so it, it's very difficult, obviously. Um, I can tell you, it, it seems like a long time. But it's been very difficult since 9-11. It's been even more difficult under the current um, presidency of this country. Um, for me, I was quite fortunate. I had met Americans and made friends with Americans who were studying their year abroad at Warwick. So I had some people to, to look after me. And after about two and a half years, I was able to get a green card, which is the, the, the resident alien work visa. Um, and, but in the, as I said, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, if you had a college degree, if you could demonstrate that you had some funds in the bank, um, they were quite willing to, to help support you. And then um, in my case, I had a, a big university here sponsored me because they wanted me to work for them. So that was helpful too. But it is very, very difficult for people from the UK to get in here. Um, 
a lot will come on summer gigs, which is quite good, especially for young people. So you do a summer camp and you come, you don't earn very much, but you get this opportunity to network. That's a very good way for young people to come. Um, for coaches who are a bit more established, one of the challenges is if you bring a partner, um, he or she might not be able to work. So you may get sponsored by a university or a grassroots club or a semi-pro club because they like your UK background, they like the fact you're UEFA or FA qualified. But then when you come, it's very challenging on the families too. So it's not an easy pathway for um, Europeans, although of course there are many, many Europeans in the game here in this country. You just touched on there, you talk there about obviously uh, the attraction that it might uh, have for some, I guess, organisations and individuals across there in terms of coming from Europe, having a UEFA qualification and uh, more specifically an FA qualification. Would you mind just talking to that a little bit in, in terms of, you know, even over here we have discussions of coaches who are maybe trying to build on their coaching, uh, their qualifications and go up the ladder, but it's increasingly difficult. Um, I'm sure it may have been difficult when you were going through your, your pathway as well. Uh, to maybe get the UEFA B to start with, and then obviously beyond that, the UEFA A license. You know, um, I consider myself quite fortunate that I, I didn't have too many, uh, I guess, uh, setbacks in that process for myself. Um, but I've spoken to coaches who maybe tried to go down the UEFA A license route over in England for about three, four uh, attempts, and have still been knocked back, and eventually decided to maybe go to Scotland or go to Wales or even Northern Ireland. Would you mind just talking to a little bit about your perspective and your views on? how prestigious the English FA award is considered as, as opposed to the others? Sure. Um, well, certainly in this country, um, we ha I run a pretty robust um, coaching education program, as does US Soccer, our primary federation. Um, it's a bit unusual to have two opportunities in a nation, obviously, but we, we have that here. I would say, though, without being unkind to what we do or what US soccer does, UEFA qualifications remain the gold standard in coach education around the world. Certainly when you look at Commebol or Africa or Oceania perhaps. Um, but as you know, different UEFA federations, despite the um, attempts to try to keep things consistent, um, some have more hours, some have much more rigor. Um, so when I think of, um, sort of gold standard ones, I definitely think of the Germans, the French, and I think um, in general, the home countries are pretty well considered um, nationally, globally anyway. And the challenge, the challenge for the English FA is they're very well, um, there's a lot of demand, so they're not, they're not struggling to put people in the courses. And of course, um, they're trying to bring ex-pro players in, which can be very daunting if you're a grassroots coach without a substantial playing background. Um, I've been very fortunate to work with many good people at the English FA, including most recently Jeff Pike, who was heading up Coach Ed. And they're good guys, but they simply don't have um, as much space. And they are fulfilling this very big um, demand from ex-pros. I work more closely with Scotland. Um, Scotland has a very prestigious um, coach education history. That's where Mourinho went through, it's where Brendan Rodgers went through, and obviously there are history of great Scottish coaches as well. And when Osh Roberts was at the Welsh, with the Welsh, she's now in Morocco actually, Carl Darlington setting up there, Nigel Best in Northern Ireland, I don't know who's with the Irish right now. But um, I think all of them maintain very good standards, but um, it is a little bit easier for me to get American coaches into the Scottish pathway 
and to a lesser extent the Welsh and the Irish than it is the English because when I talk to my colleagues at St George's Park they simply don't need candidates they're very uh, they can they can't even meet the demands of the, the uh, English based coaches much less foreign based so uh, we send a lot of coaches to Scotland right now yeah and just um, uh, just on that what sort of um, differences do you see then in comparison to the US sort of like coach education pathway like is there any sort of like main things because I can imagine um, with the US ones and just from what I've read like on um, the basics is that um, there's a lot of sports science involved in it and you know some people see that as good some people see that as bad but what's your opinion on it? Yeah so it's a great question Ben because when I first came here there was no way our coaching education programs could hold a torch to the technical tactical type of coach education that you were getting in UEFA or um, European FAs but where the Americans were very very strong and uniquely strong was in the sports sciences so um, psychology uh, physical conditioning um, analysis performance analysis because in part because of the great influence of American football here so when um, colleagues would come from Europe they marveled at how advanced we were in that space and this would be sort of the 90s I think in this in this last 20 years though um, we in America have probably really upgraded our technical tactical football content and of course UEFA countries have really added a lot more in sometimes we call them soft skills but I think sports sciences and I would argue that that is it, it's very necessary so I appreciate some people initially go to coaching badges and they want to be on the field with the balls flying around and 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 doing a lot of technical tactical um, but I think even at the grassroots level if you can equip a, a parent coach uh, a grassroots coach with some basic communication skills some basic understanding of child development theory um, some notion of maybe developmentally appropriate activity on the basis of chronological age or athletic ability. Um, if you can help a grassroots coach with notions of periodization, so they have a sense of what the workload is. Um, and then obviously some of the psychology around stress um, and, and the fact that two children will have a different response to a challenging environment. And so one needs a different kind of care. Um, so I think that that those if you have if you have listeners and, and guests who are not particularly um, big on the sports sciences, I would I would probably speak uh, speak for the sports sciences. However, at the end of the day, it's about football. So people need to know how the ball rolls and they need to know where the white lines are. So I do get a little bit disappointed when we bring in expertise and we don't make that connection between the game. Um, so I could go and work with, let's say, for example, netball coaches and talk about organization and structure, but I don't know anything about the techniques or tactics of netball. So that's a, that's a good skill set for me to share, how I would organize a practice, how I would communicate. But at the end of the day, you still need the football experts in there somewhere. Yeah, I think um, I agree. I agree with you there. Like, I, I feel like... Um... Like generally speaking, that like a lot of coaches' consensus here is about oh, it's just the football. But like when the when players are playing the game, all the aspects are involved. 
the psychological aspect, the physical, technical and tactical. So like, you can't really be isolating them when everything is happening at the same time. So it's really important that the sports science aspect is um, taken into mind. And like, even if it is just like a basic understanding of like how, many, how long the reps are, how long rest you give them and stuff like that. Um, just in regards to, you know, the sort of uh, college soccer setup, um, I, I was fortunate enough to go to Loughborough, which I feel like in terms of like the uni, the uni football side, that's the closest that I can get to like the sort of US um, sort of college soccer side where, you know, they have their own stadium and uh, whatnot. We're definitely not as close uh, to as number of fans that come to watch, but like, how is it there? What, what would you say are the differences there in terms of you, like the college setup there and university football in the UK? Yeah, so um, obviously university football, um, we had a couple of lads that run the books at Coventry and a couple that went on to play pro after, after Warwick um, and had decent careers. But the majority of, of young players of calibre of that time would have already been with pro clubs. They wouldn't have been pursuing a four-year university degree in the middle of the 80s. So a, a different time. But we were very fortunate because we were in the same group as Loughborough and we just happened to have a very, very talented group of players. So, so it was a good level, very good level, which put me in good stead when I came over here because there wasn't a professional men's outdoor league of any, any, um, any substance. So I played at the highest level of essentially amateur football in this country. And my college at Warwick could really help. But I, I was fortunate at Warwick. Um, up until, um, well, even, even um, after MLS started. So MLS has been around for about 24 years, I think, 25 years. Um, but as recently as 2014, half of the players that represented the U.S. in the World Cup had played at least two years, if not more, of American college soccer. So as recently as 2014, some grounding of the game in the US college system was still enough to produce young pros who now were in the MLS. Um, in the five or six years since, more and more young men are going straight to MLS academies and signing. Um, so much more of a European model. The only challenge with that is in our culture here in the States that, that a two-year or four-year education is sort of very, very necessary for, for advancement in life in general. Um, so having young men put their college on hold to play in the MLS, I, I'm not completely sure it fits the, all of the cultural standards here. That said, um, if you wanted to be in the MLS and you go the college way, you're really make, trying to make your breakthrough at 22. Um, if you're prepared to maybe give up on college, you go into the, the uh, MLS Academy as a little kid, and then sometime around the age of 16, 18, you've got to make that decision about whether you want to commit. Um, now, there are lots of good safety nets because they might put some money aside in your contract. So if you're a smart parent and a smart kid, you might say, defer some of my, um, my MLS salary for subsequent college. But as we all know, it's much harder to go back to college when you're in your mid twenties or late twenties um, than to go in when you're a, when you're a teenager. But um, college soccer remains very, very important here. It's just not at the level it was 15, 20 years ago because MLS has picked up a lot of the slack in player development. Just touching on that, you talked there about um, that 
the, the, the different pathways you can kind of take to get into the elite game over there or the pro game. <coughs> Sorry. Um, on one side, you've got the, you know, the, the traditional route, shall we say, going through the academy program and working through that. And then obviously, the, you know, going through the, the education route through the university and then maybe go, get recruited through that process. Where would you say is a better place to kind of maybe be situated within that? Because, you know, we have, um, obviously over here, there's similar, similar in, to an extent. I mean, you might not get picked up at university per se, but you might get picked from, up from a, a further education college program of some sort, um, as well as having the academy program. And it's a conversation I've had with a lot of coaches o over time in that, especially when it comes to parents and how much it means for them to, for their players to be in an academy or their children to be in an academy. I, I'm of the view that, you know, 9, 10, 11, all those foundation phases and even the early youth development phase years, for me, it, it, it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't really tell you anything about where that player is going to end up. Um, whereas if they're getting picked up at maybe 15, 16, and they're now getting prepared to, you know, go from the youth development phase into professional development phase, there's probably more um, more evaluation has gone into it, right? how, how much of an opportunity this player actually has to go on and become a professional. Um, what are your thoughts on that in, in, terms of, in terms of that side of things? Obviously, it's important that they are getting a lot of supervision and support at those early years. But what would your, you know, what would your thoughts be on that as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you in as much as I think we, we start too early. We make um, very bold predictions about eight, nine, ten-year-olds, and we put a lot of pressure on them. And then we, we basically um, throw them on the scrap heap and pick up some more nine, 10 year olds. So I'm very, very disturbed in general about that. And, you know, it looks different in every, in different places, right? So you see young, young men being sent up from, from Africa at very young ages to Europe on the promise of professional contracts and there's nothing there. So that, that's one, one situation. But I mean, here, let's say that the academy has 300 players from the entry level of eight, nine up to the under 18s, 19s, and two or three are going to make pros, full-time pros. What's, what's, what about the other 297? So those boys will be given really good training, really good facilities. There's no doubt they will improve, but at the end of the day, um, there isn't really a, a meaningful sort of championship level or League One, League Two and a, an established uh, conference program here. So the pyramid is not as rich. And so I could make the case to an, a, a parent here, maybe you spend a little bit less money initially chasing the dream because you have to very often um, you have to start off that way. Maybe you get some time and family time back by not driving all over God's green earth to play all of these academy games. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a happy, healthy child who's probably quite talented at football and can certainly specialize if, if it's deemed at the age of 13, 14, there's really something there. Um, but at the end of the day, the majority of our young athletes are going to end up in the uh, American college system academically. And so they should. Um, one huge good thing about our academy system at the MLS level, um, and it, it's changed ever so slightly because the last three months of the, the global health scare, but basically it's free to play in the MLS academies, which has meant that now players are being picked exclusively on their talent. So we've got more diversity 
in the elite player pool in this country now than we did previously, where it was pay to play. Um, so, you know, there's some good and bad about academies. Um, but I do think any, any academy that really makes a sincere effort to pay as much attention to the kids it doesn't keep as the ones it pushes on would be the academies that I would look to celebrate and want to see my kids and, and recommend. And, and there are clearly, even though it doesn't necessarily make a ton of financial sense to create those safety nets and support the players you don't want to keep anymore, I think morally it's the right thing to do. And I think you can also win some friends doing that kind of thing. And just, just on that then, you know, I'm not sure if there isn't, it'd be good to find out whether, is there a set time frame in which if a player is committed to an academy or academy over their signs of player, they have to honour a set time frame or is it a case of, right, we're going to take you on and as soon as we feel out, we're not, we're not getting anywhere here, we're going to let you, gonna, you know, push you out that door. Yeah, I think um, they can start signing players to, they can sign players to their academies. So they can kind of lock them in, homegrown is what we call it here, quite early. Uh, but I think the first time, much like the, the European global system is 16, I think. Where there's that. Um, I think I meant more in terms of if we bring a player in, sign them in the academy, is there, a, is there a minimum term that we have to retain them before, before they may potentially get released if they're not quite up to scratch? No, no, no minimum term unless there's a contractual agreement between you and the player. But, yeah, so I mean, just coming back to the point that you were making there a second ago about giving players an opportunity to, I guess, flourish essentially within that environment it'd be interesting because i was having a conversation with someone recently around and it'd be good to get your thoughts on this if at the foundation phase you touched on there about maybe picking up nines and tens letting them go in and getting another nines and tens just stockpiling them as you, as you, as you put it it'll be very interesting to see that even now with the way that things have changed over there and that it's not a lo no longer pay to play and it's free whether if there was a set time frame, and I, and I, and I, I do challenge a lot of coaches and academy directors over here with some of the conversations I have in that, how different would things look if you had to lock those players in and say, right, for, three, for every player that you signed in that foundation phase, they need to be at your club for two or three years. Would yeah. the approach be different? Would you well, actually... It would be, coach it would be yeah, it would be wonderful because part of it would be you would now have to make, you'd have to be much more effective in your scouting. But once you've done your scouting, you don't have to worry about going out and trying to recruit and improve. And one of the, I mean, I was a college recruiter. I used to recruit for college, but in the youth game here at the pro level and the grassroots level, the amount of player movement and coaching is very often defined on your ability to, to convince the kid to come to your program more than what you do with the kid when they're there. So some, some form of across the board standards like that would, would reduce some of the absolute anarchy in youth player development, yeah. Definitely, I think uh, alongside that, I think what you'd find, and I'm not sure what the, what the process is or the structure is like out there, but certainly over here, we've got the academies and you've got the, the development centers or advanced development centers or performance centers, whatever you want to call them. I mean, they've got so many different names nowadays. Um, but I think if a process like or a structure like that was in place, I think also the standard at those environments would be raised massively. Um, and then you really would be maybe pulling out some of the best talent. It would just be interesting to get your views and thoughts on terms of at that foundation phase stage now, what you would consider as key ingredients that you might look for in a foundation phase player to maybe identify them as a, a, essentially as a gifted and talented individual 
uh, worthy of an opportunity in that environment at a stage. Not to say that everyone's or some people are not worthy of that opportunity per se, um, but obviously we have to assess and I guess differentiate people that we're going to push through essentially. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think most of us could recognise technical proficiency, right? So, kids that that can can manipulate the ball and handle the ball, two-footedness. Um, I was recently at Southampton, who I think do a wonderful job, and every kid's got their head on a swivel. It, it's trained into them, and for some some of the young players, you can tell it's been trained into them, and others you can tell it's much more innate. Um, so I think certainly the physical things, I don't think I'm really particularly worried about tactical decision-making. Um, um, but then I, I do think I would be looking for kids that in and around the game, if you can, if you can see it, are just, they're game players, they're interested in the game, they want to play the game, more like our romantic notion of street players. You do see, I've seen it at top, top academies, uh, the Premier League academies in, in the UK, where the players, the parents' enthusiasm for what the kids are doing might trump the kids' enthusiasm. That's not to say the kids don't like playing soccer, but they're, they're really, they're not being allowed to, to flourish and grow. So for me, some of the special kids are those ones that when everybody else has got, the, you know, they've reached into their bags and they've got their iPhones out or whatever they're allowed to have, one of them still knocking a ball up against the wall and he, he or she might not be the most talented, but they're ones that have that certain little commitment and focus. Um, now when they're, when they're in the foundation stage, some coaches won't like the cheeky kids, right? And other kids and other coaches um, will want that kind of flair. That's, that's really down to the, the club or the coaches philosophy. Um, and then I think we've, you know, previously we've always, we've always been too big on athletic ability, right? So the, the tallest, the fastest tend to pick, um, tend, tend to get picked. I wouldn't be looking at any significant physical qualities, um, possibly with the exception of goalkeepers. And there are some Premier League clubs that are very strict. If you're not going to be six foot four, they're not going to uh, be much interested in you. Um, but I mean, if anybody had the, if anybody really knew the answer, right? If they really had the magic source, um, they'd be they'd be good, but you look at um, Ajax is one of the, the top development academies in the in the world, and and they put a lot on the technical. They put a lot on the kids' general behaviour. Um, they put a lot on family education, uh, making sure the kids have a shower after training and things like that. So they they do look a little bit more at the holistic um, a part of the player as opposed to their ability to win you a game today. And so we should be we should be looking for players that maybe can't win us the game today, but could be really good players down the line. So Ian, you touched on there about you know um, coaches and their philosophies. I you know just got a couple of questions to kind of uh, I guess delve in on top of that in terms of just how important you think it is that coaches look at maybe themselves in, in the respect of where they may be best suited as coaches in terms of what phase or what age and stage of the players they should be working with in that respect. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges understandably is certainly obviously in Europe, uh, well, especially in the UK in particular, that we have obviously the challenge of coaches who tend to work with the older age groups tend to have, I guess, better packaged in terms of salary. Um, and a lot of coaches end up going down that pathway because of that financial um, aspect of it, rather than 
uh, a passion for working with that group of players, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's a huge problem, right? Because typically the, the compensation goes up as you go up chronological age as well as competitive levels. Um, and yet our foundation stages are what provides us very often with that talent pool. Um, I could make a very strong case that if I was in, in a decent academy type setting, managing the 16s and 17s is a little bit more about managing teenagers than, than, than coaching technical tactical, right? Because what I, I, need the, I need that base and skill set to come from the 9, 10, 11 year old program. But I don't know really of anywhere in the world where that, that has been solved effectively. Um, you might look at a, a club like, for example, Ajax, right? So Ajax exists in part to generate first-team players, their academy. So their academy exists to generate first-team players and then to sell those players onto top leagues so that the whole of the club can stay in business, if you will. So there are some clubs around the world, there are some countries around the world where development is what sustains the higher levels because they don't have TV rights and things like that. Um, uh, I, I travel quite a lot in South and Central America and there are a lot of clubs like that where the whole club ethos is the development of talent to support its own team because they can't buy players in and then to sell them. Um, now, how that money then gets redistributed, does it go in the owner's pocket? Does it go to support the first team or do the people that are doing the work of recruiting the young foundational talent and then developing see some sort of uh, payoff? Probably not. And I mean, I think West Ham's academy was one of the, the gold standards, right? And, and um, after a number of years of great success, the, the head of the West Ham academy was somewhat unceremoniously like released. Um, so he's kind of a... Coach Carr was a legend over here, and the work of the West Ham Academy was legendary, but I don't know that anybody ever um, got to buy a Mercedes or buy a second house down on the Riviera with it. No, definitely, 100%. I know it's a conversation. Funnily enough, we actually had uh, Tony Carr on our, on our show recently, um, released the episode with us last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and it, we, we brushed on that briefly. Um, you know, such an illustrious career as a as a youth developer in particular, and he expressed, you know, he wished that he, he would still be involved in some capacity, more more so as a, a a coach developer or mentor or some sort in that respect. But certainly, as you put it, gold standard. You know, the amount of players that came through that academy. You know, I think it just kind of goes further to highlight highlight on the or linking to my next question in that. Once coaches are start to maybe become more aware of maybe where they're best suited, um, about how important it is that they stick with it, they've identified what their strengths are. Um, as as would have you know, if we take West Ham's model for instance, they had their own strengths within it, and obviously, um, but but also understanding just because it's your strength that it's not the only way of working. And the importance of obviously maybe working with other coaches as well and understanding the differences within your methodology, another methodology. So, you know, in terms of philosophies, how important is it for coaches that they're working in environments that are in full alignment of their philosophies? Because um, certainly, you know, there's coaches that go into certain environments because of the opportunity to be in the 
I guess, academy or pro game environment, but maybe don't sit right in terms of what their values and beliefs are yeah. and then the club's values and beliefs. Well, it, it's, for me, it's very contextual and it's very personal, but it's really hard to help a young coach navigating that pathway. So I get, obviously, I get asked a lot about how do I get the job that you have or how do, how do you get there? Um, if you love the game, you want to you wanna achieve a, a, some objectives in the game, um, be they to coach at a first team level or assistant coach or be in, in the professional game, um, and you're prepared to live out of your, your kit bag and you'll sleep on the floor and you'll eat cold cans of baked beans because you're prepared to, to kick down some doors and just go that route, then, then go for it. If, however, you've got responsibilities like a partner and kids, you may have to compromise um, not only your career professional pathway, but you might occasionally have to compromise your professional standards and or sense of, of morality and ethical standards. Not hopefully, you know, terribly, but, um, you know, I'll give you a very, a very sort of simple example, perhaps. Um, in this country, you're a, you're a volunteer coach, you're a mildly compensated grassroots coach, and you believe that every child should play equal playing time over the course of the season. Quite reasonable. Um, you have the parent meeting, and the parents turn around to you and they say that we'd like to win the league and the cup this year. Well, those two things are not necessarily compatible because to win the league and cup, probably got to have the preponderance of my best players on most of the time. But I believe that the kids should all get equal playing time at the foundational level. Do I then walk away from that job opportunity? Um, can I afford to walk away from that job opportunity? Or do I suck it up a little bit and start to stretch my squad out with kids sitting on the bench too much and kids playing a lot? And until you've walked in that person's shoes, um, you can only give them some advice and, and kind of probe a little bit more. What, what do you want? I mean, I, I can tell you over the course of my career, I've determined that I'm not a particularly effective head coach. I don't, I'm, let me put this up. I might be quite effective as a head coach, but I don't like the strain. I would much rather be the assistant um, that interaction with the players. So when I look at Eddie Howe today, he just got off the television. He's always got that loyal assistant to him. If, if, but if you've got the ego that you need to be the, the, the man or the, the, the woman, then you're pursuing the head coaching job and you want to delegate and you want to be in front of the camera, which makes you increasingly further away from the players. God bless you. Right. Um, I mean, Mourinho started off what as an interpreter and he, he's on the field. I see him on the field, but he doesn't do a ton of the coaching anymore. Right. He's a manager. He's a manager of people and organizations. So it's to each their own. Um, the nice thing is about the game though, whether you're in the, you get paid for your time um, at, levels um, or you're in the complete grassroots foundational level um, and to Ben's conversation about sports sciences there are more opportunities to be involved in and around the game now you know previously there was a person with a bucket of cold water and a sponge there was a, a coach in a dodgy sheepskin jacket and that was the management team right but now you might be somebody that is is really you're really good at developing kids physical skills their coordination skills maybe you have a, a grounding in psychology. Um, maybe you're very good with technology and analysis, performance analysis, match analysis. So I think there are more opportunities. Um, 
but I don't think it would be foolish if every young coach out there wanted to be Gareth Southgate when they're done or Hope Powell. That would, that would be silly because that, not only is it very difficult to become that person, once you get there, you might not want to be that person. No, I completely agree. And um, just kind of touching on what you said a bit earlier in terms of like the expertise that people should have. I feel like um, football is kind of catching up with other sports and especially with you being in America that you can see that, um, you can see how the sports science kind of marries up with the other sports there. But like they've kind of had like an extensive amount of years of like marrying it up and with football. Yeah, now the experts are coming in, but it kind of feels like there's still a bit of a lack of application in terms of the context of football because it's a bit, it's quite different um, to other sports and even... Uh, like from my time doing my masters and having the sports science bit of it, is that like a lot of um, the research that has done is quite transferable stuff from um, other sports. But I haven't seen anything specific per se to football. And I don't blame them because it is, it is a difficult sport to kind of have a consistent measure in. But um, how do you see it? How do you see it in America in terms of um, with the coaches there and their sort of understanding of it and how they kind of would work with other staff in that sense though. Yeah, I, I would say that the typical American coach um, is, is relatively sophisticated, even at the grassroots level, in being aware of all of the resources that are there. So especially in the last three and a half months, everybody's been online taking uh, FA courses, some of the free psychology courses, um, taking some more things on performance analysis and match analysis. So the American soccer coach in general is quite sophisticated in understanding all of these resources are available. Um, and increasingly more of those coaches, be they mum and dad coaches all the way up through have had a playing background as well. Um, and, and to some extent, the relative newness of football in this country of soccer in this country, relatively speaking, is actually quite helpful because we aren't as quite stuck in our ways as traditional European countries have been. So change is, is quite possible here. Um, and we have, you know, we have a lot of good influences. So the, the, the European influence is strong in our country, in America, but we obviously have a very strong Spanish speaking Latin influence. Yeah. Um, after the, uh, after the Balkans war, we had a lot of Serbian, um, Croatian people moved to this country. Um, we obviously have a lot of, uh, um, uh, when I was in Minnesota, we had a lot of East Africans. We had a lot of Liberians. I got to meet George Weah when he was running for president and came to Minnesota. Um, so the American soccer coach is, in, is, is, in, is pretty sophisticated with all of those resources. One thing though, I was listening to you pose the question, Ben, um, why do English coaches not, um, top level coaches make it in other countries. Language is a huge thing, right? So you look at Mourinho, you look at Guardiola, uh, Wenger, their language skills and multiple language skills makes them highly um, portable in terms of where they can go and, and the influences they can make. That is very unusual for a British coach um, as, it, as it is to some extent with an American coach. The other thing is if you are not particularly good with understanding cultural diversity and and inclusion then that can be a very limiting factor for you as a coach too right so 
if, if you pretty much understand the mentality of, of, a, of a working class person from Northern England, but you aren't really ready to blend in a South American influence, or you're not ready to blend in an Eastern European influence, that can be very limiting. So one of the things that the young coach setting out, the more you can do with your language skills and your cultural cross-referencing skills would be hugely beneficial. And when I came here in 87, if I'd have been a smart guy, which I wasn't, I would have learned Spanish. Because a guy that looks like me, to suddenly walk into a group of Latin, Latino players here and speak Spanish would, would, would have made me a rock star. So I regret, I regret not knowing that when I, not thinking about it when I came here. Do you know, just some, something that you say there and it kind of resonates with me. I mean, I can think back to about, about three, four years ago, I was working with a group of players um, and this particular group of players was very diverse in terms of where the players had come from. I had players from, uh, you know, everywhere. I had players from Colombia, I played from uh, France, I had players from the Ivory Coast, I had players from uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, you name it. There was players from all over the world. Um, and then... Some of them spoke English, some of them didn't speak English, some of them were broken English, some of them not a word of it. Um, and my Spanish isn't great at all, um, but I've made an effort to try and learn. Um, but it, it, I, was, I, was working, I was actually working with this group of players and, it, and what really happened for me was I had this, uh, this, this clique of uh, French-speaking players and I found myself, every time I was communicating a message, I had one of them almost translating that message for me. And then what, it just hit me one, one day and I thought to myself, hold on, I said, what am I going to do if this guy's not here? How am I going to get that message across? Um, so I, I kind of actually undertook an exercise for myself almost where I would maybe think about all the words I tend to use within my coaching language. Um, I actually then got someone who... Uh, can speak Spanish, can speak French, can speak, uh, what was the other language? I can't remember the other language off the top of my head, but who could speak these other languages. Uh, I would actually sit and have a conversation with them, break down exactly what I meant in terms of context of each of these, these words. So there was a clear definition for them, um, which was a bit of a challenge, for, I guess, speaking to someone who didn't know about football, but had to get that message across to them. So that was a challenge in my communication anyway. Um, and then getting them to almost give me that phrase or that word with a similar definition in that language. So that when I was when I was working with these players, it became a lot clearer for them. And I think at that moment there, you know, touching the likes of Marino, the likes of Wenger, being able to speak other languages, not only does it make it more portable, but especially at the high end of, high end of the game on this, in this current climate, there's players from all over the world. Um, some who could be very similar to the players that I spoke to or not speaking of at the time where, they may know one or two words of English, but the real nitty gritty, the detailed words that you need them to really catch on to, if they don't understand those, those messages aren't going to mean a thing. So it, it does really kind of resonate with me when you say that. And I think coming back to one of the points you made there, why do you think it is um, that British coaches in particular maybe don't, and I'm going to generalize a little bit, but don't take those steps to maybe develop on those things as, as much as maybe they probably should or could? It's a really interesting question. And I, 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 you know, I think there's a lot of very fine, let's go the highest of very fine English managers um, who, you know, you'd like to maybe see get a shot with a Chelsea or an Arsenal um, uh, and, and haven't had that opportunity yet. Um, 
Sam Allardyce back in the day when he was at Bolton, right, was, was treated pretty poorly by the press in general. There was quite a lot of snobbery about the way Big Sam's teams play. But if you listen carefully to a lot of the commentary, Allardyce gets tons of credit for being one of the very first managers, uh, English managers, to really get into sports sciences and was over here a lot looking at American football. And he put that in at Bolton. And I don't think there was any argument that Big Sam knew how to really deal with the analysis and the technology, but he knew it was important. So he equipped himself with people around him that could do that. Um, I think it's interesting when you look at um, when, when Wenger was at Arsenal, he had Pat Rice on the bench, right? And he had Steve Bald on the bench. Um, at different times, Man City has had Brian Kidd on the bench. So clearly, people, certainly, certainly a lot of foreign managers, understand the importance of having an English component within their structure. Um, I think, um, you know, English managers learning a few more, uh, I mean, learning language would be good. There's a young man and a young American who is coaching at uh, Salzburg. He just won the Austrian league. His name is Jesse Marsh. Previously, Jesse was uh, at Leipzig as the assistant coach for Red Bull. And then before that, he was the head coach of Red Bull here in New York. And before that, he was the head coach of Montreal. Um, when he was in Montreal, he learned to speak French. Then when he went to New York, he was fine. Then we went to Leipzig. And now he gives interviews in German and he's an American and he gives interviews in German on Austrian television that now I'm not suggesting you know to be a foundation coach you need to do that but maybe if you know that some of your kids have different dietary habits or maybe if you know that some of your kids have different religious practices which makes them unavailable for certain trainings or they're not in the same level of condition I mean COVID right you, the first time you see your kids now post COVID and you decide you're going to do fitness training. Well, one of them has been living in a tower block and one of them has been living in the suburbs with a little bit of backyard. So how can you treat those two kids equally? And this I think is be it, be it English coaches. I think foreign coaches being part of a coach is appreciating the needs of all of your group and doing your best to meet those individual needs whilst looking after the collective. And I think um, we start to see British coaches now. Um, I think of Eddie Howe, seems like a pretty reasonable chap. Sean Dyche seems like a pretty reasonable guy. Um, I was really impressed with Darren Moore when he was at West Brom. I think he's now at Doncaster. But I think he do, uh, Gareth Southgate, right, is getting a ton of credit for, for his ability to manage the press and the things he says and does. I do think that is, I think you need to be that, you need to be that manager, be you at the foundational level or the highest level. Yeah, see, you're already kind of um, touching it there. And you mentioned earlier that like you, you, you kind of identify yourself more so of an assistant coach as opposed to a head coach. But like you started touching it just now um, in terms of the fundamentals of what like your coaching philosophy is. I just wanted you to like delve a bit deeper into like what is it that like, defines you uh, like, in your coaching? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, well, obviously, I'm, I'm um, mid-50s, so it's trial and error, right? There's experiences, and so... Um, and I'm, I'm relatively set in my career financially. I, there's a certain number of years I can keep going, but um, 
but I, the, the probably the, the thing that I learned quite quickly was I used to take the wins too personally and the losses too personally. And so I tended to, like a lot of coaches, I think live at the extremes of, of high and low and somewhere in the middle was much more sense. Um, and I had an experience when I was in my late 20s, which was really powerful for me, um, which I think speaks to this, Ben. And it was the club I was with. We won a very, very, very major tournament. And I was the assistant. And I got into my office and I had the trophy on my desk. And I thought, well, this is great. For the next two or three years, we can coast because we've won the trophy. You know, people will want to come play for us. And then I realized that some of the other people in the game at, at the level we were at um, and head coaches, they don't think like that. They win it. And then about 20 minutes later, they think about winning the next one. And that's not my personality. I'm not that A type, must win, must win, must win. Churn. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. People over to do it. Um, and yet I'm highly competitive. So how can I, what environments are the right environments for me? Because I, I like to rack up victories. And occasionally it's nice to win 5-0. But now, I remember when I was an athlete, sometimes it was much more fun to lose one nil, but no, you gave full effort and you know the opponent did. So I've become a little bit more, well, I've definitely become much, much more process oriented as opposed to outcome orientation. Um, and I think that comes with age. But I also think it, you, to do that, you have to be willing to reflect and be quite honest. And so some of us, we blame the defeats on somebody, we take credit for the victories, and we never go through that process of reflection. And, and so, um, and now my undergraduate degree at Warwick was philosophy, so that probably tells you something anyway. So. But yeah, that, that would be, for me, it's not about me anymore. It, there were tons of times in my career where I, I thought it all hinged on me, but now it's much more about the game. And then after the game about the collection of individuals that I'm trying to gel into a team. No, I think um, philosophy has a, a point to stand in every sort of aspect of life. And uh, we could do another episode on just that anyway, because there's so much to delve into with that. 
Um, but like, I couldn't um, help but like just through this conversation and like just some of the key terms that you're, you're bringing up in terms of like coaches like understanding like the sort of diverse cultures and then your your kind of acknowledgement there of like Darren um, Darren Moore as well. I just want to get your opinion a bit about like you know sort of ethnic minority coaches in the game. Like um like you see so much uh, within the playing aspect of it and whatnot, but there still seems to see be some sort of disparity when it comes to the coaching side of it. Like um wh- what do you think it is? Why do you think that difference is there? Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to pile on, right, because it's all of a sudden very politically correct right. to have a, um, a couple of resources I'll share with you. There's a gentleman called Paul Cleal. Um, he just got an OBE and he and I went to college together. He's my best mate. He's a lad that lives in Bermondsey. So he was just on with 10 uh, MPs last week talking about, you know, Roland Butcher, Viv Anderson, um, these firsts in, in, in UK sports and, and where, where has it gone? Um, I actually have a 1974 Panini sticker album and the only black player in it was Viv Anderson. I think that's right. And then I remember Clyde Best when he was at, at West Ham, but that was about it. Um, and now you see the diversity of the leagues. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really a huge concern. Um, but I think owners tend to look and, and they want people they can understand and they can relate to. And so until you get ownership, boardroom leadership, I don't think the opportunities for the managers will be there. Um, I think Chris Hewton's been knocked around a bit more than some managers personally. Um, Chris Ramsey, who I've got a lot of time for, who was actually over here for a little while and did some badges here, I believe it's true when he was at Spurs and Spurs played in the Champions League, he was the manager of record because Tim Sherwood didn't have the necessary coaching qualifications. And I know whether Chris Ramsey is a great head coach or not a great head coach, but, but what, a, what a fantastic resource for our game. And I, don't, I couldn't even tell you where Chris is right now. I'm sure he's coaching somewhere at QPR or somewhere. But So there's, there's not enough managers. And, and I would argue that with the diversity of the playing pools, I think the players need to look up and look across the bench occasionally and see a few more people that look like them, talk like them, have similar experiences to them. Um, so, so there needs to be, there need, and when I was listening to Paul talk to the, the uh, MPs the other day, he said he doesn't really believe in quotas, but he does believe in targets, right? So we believe that in the next 10 years, we should see um, coaches of color on the benches of Premier League. And, and we think that, you know, half of them should be managed by coaches of color, right? And, and maybe part of that, that target is half of them should be, have been developed, all of the coaches should have been developed in the UK. So we're not always importing Italians, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to do, but I think if, it, if there was ever a time to really address it, and I really do think um, the UK is, is in the forefront of the discussion right now in light of the last few months, particularly. Um, I, I, mean, I, was always, I was always delighted to see Hope Powell be the coach of your women's national team. That, to me, was a huge commitment um, because over here we have very enlightened women's football, but we haven't done great with the promotion of women coaches. We have some, um, and we have Laura Harvey and some other women coaching in the Women's Pro League here. 
but you know opportunities for women in the women's game haven't been great and certainly the opportunities for minorities in a game where increasing numbers of the athletes are athletes of color um in in the in the nba basketball i think 78 percent of the athletes are african-american and they're just they're virtually no african-american coaches so it's not a football problem it's a societal problem but i definitely think you you need to get ownership and front office uh because i think they're most likely to make the necessary hires that's that's what you need i think there are coaches coming through the coaching ranks they're getting the badges they're doing the right work but when i think they come for the job applications there aren't enough people that understand the unique challenges they've had to get to that point as opposed to somebody that maybe looks like them and came from the same postal code as them. Yeah. Maybe just kind of to move the conversation on a little bit, I want to take it back to yourself um, and obviously your role as a director of coach education. Um, would you mind just going in a bit, into a bit of detail now? You know, it might sound pretty much self-explanatory to an extent, but what that actually entails. Yeah, um, so long story short, um, America is a very unique country in as much as it, if, it's a, if it's a first world soccer nation, but it hasn't had professional leagues for very long, that the players were sustained by the clubs. So our women's national team um, was always sponsored by the Federation and our men's national team pretty much was because as recently as 1994, the guys that played in the World Cup here, they'd never been pros because there was no pro league, right? So we're a first world football nation, but our federation has been heavily distracted because it didn't have a pro league to develop all of the other resources. So there are two education, two, two broad education pathways, one of US soccer and then one that I direct. And they originally were German inspired back in the late 70s and 80s. Germans were coming over from UEFA and helping us build our coaching education pathway. Um, but within our two coaching path pathways, um, we have programs for mum and dad coaches to come out for two or three hours and learn some real basic child development and how to set the cones up and how to deal with the kid who wants to go to the bathroom when you've got six kids going the other way. So we do those. And we go all the way up to a two-year master's degree with Ohio University, where you can take a master's degree in soccer coaching. Um, and then in between there, I have things like a UEFA sort of CB level, you know, heavy technical, lots of field sessions, lots of practical assessment. We have a lot of that. Um, we have a unique goalkeeper program, which is, is quite popular because the goalkeeper profession has been underserved. Um, I work with a woman. Uh, called Sarah McQuaid, who's done a lot of work with British sports, but she's over here now. And we have a whole course on coach developer. So basically you're the director of a club, you're hiring volunteers and, and, and um, semi-professional coaches to say semi-compensated coaches. So we actually have a whole diploma program on how you become a better educator of adults. So pretty much um, a, to, a to Z, if you will, but, um, culminating in a master's, the full-fledged master's degree, and then all the way back down to the, the two, three hours on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, that's, um, uh, that's quite an interesting uh, thing there in terms of the master's degree aspect of it, because um, it's even today that I was just seeing that even the Scottish FA, they've kind of rolled out that sort of degree uh, route there. Um, like, 
obviously in the UK is becoming more and more apparent that like you know coaches are getting like getting through the academic sort of thing and not necessarily needing the professional playing route. So is that something that you took into consideration when you were making that sort of course there? Yeah. So there's a there's a guy, uh, Dr. Kerry Bowley. Um, he was working at Cardiff. No, it was the University of South Wales, I believe. Um, but I think it, when he was at Cardiff Met, they developed the um, undergraduate program for players that are still in academies and things like that. So that was more for a player base. Um, I The interesting thing about coach education, and, and yes, I know you've been through your UEFA awards, right? So you know, and I know, that you line up a couple of guys with UEFA Bs, which is a prestigious award and takes a lot of time, but some of those you wouldn't hire to work with kids, right? Or you wouldn't hire to work with anybody because they're not good people. So coach education definitely identifies the person, put themselves in front of the of the the club, the content. Maybe they were required to by their club. Maybe they did it themselves. So you can't always see the motivation, but you know they did it, and you know they probably invested time and money. And and God bless anybody that does that. If you finish the assessments, you've got the minimum standards you've got the badges but it doesn't again tell you about honesty integrity doesn't tell you if they're right to work with kids or adults or, or men or women um, so what we try to do is we try to honor every coach that comes into our program we deem them to be an expert whether they're mum and dad or a, a pro coach they're an expert because nobody knows the piece of ground that they train on the number of kids they have the resources they have so i i, I tend to be um, much more egalitarian with my coaching education programs. So we listen to what coaches, um, we listen to their experiences, and then we try to create programs which, which address those needs. Now, obviously, I can't tailor, unless there's a lot of money and time involved, an individual program for Ben and an individual program for Yas, unless we're at the master's level. But we do tend to be very um, willing to change our content. So a grassroots course in inner city Chicago will look a lot different than a grassroots course. Um, the delivery, not so much the content, but the delivery is one in rural Arkansas. And um, that is all about honoring the, honoring the learner. Um, so we, we put a lot of content out there and then we hope the learners find the bits which are of value, value to them. And I have no problem if the learner says to me that part wasn't much use to me. Yeah. That's fine. I respect that. It's quite similar. I mean, I, I, one of my roles at the moment, I've deliver, I actually deliver level ones and twos for the FA over here as well. Um, and it's it very much a similar uh, approach in that uh, on this week, I might be running a level one in South London with a group of coaches who are just parent coaches because, you know, the club have decided to get all the parents on a course. That, again, whilst the content might not change, maybe the emphasis and how much depth you go into the different elements may change within that um depending on where you see i guess that group of uh learners or candidates on the course requiring that additional attention it'd be interesting to get your thoughts in terms of you touched on it there about previously previously you touched on that there was a much more there wasn't much focus around the technical tactical side of things but the started to bridge all the other elements of essentially what we refer to as the four corner model over here um, in previous courses how from your experience now having obviously been in the position you're in and exposure to the courses that 
obviously that the UEFA run in particular the English FA and you know, maybe even the Scottish FA. How much emphasis is there on the technical tactical side? And I know, the, uh, you know, I understand they've got different pathways. You've got the grassroots qualifications you've got over there, as well as um, those more senior, um, less recreational, and more, I guess, elite qualifications as well. Or at least there's different elements to them anyway. How much emphasis on that technical tactical stuff is there within that? Um, so tactical content is is obviously popular. Everybody loves talking about tactical content. And we have increasing, um, you know, increasingly more and more of our coaches coming into education have played at a, a, perhaps a very good level and they've played since they were two or three. So, you know, a number of years ago, it was only Europeans that had that immersion in the sport. Now there are many, many Americans. The only difference for that American is that he or she's not surrounded by the media of football in an exclusively football country. You've still got to dig pretty hard to find football coverage in this country. Um, so how that manifests itself for you, for example, is that if I walk into a classroom of grassroots coaches here and I say, when he's playing, Ozil plays like this for Arsenal, but when he plays, when he used to play for Germany, he played like that, they would all know what the hell I was talking about. They would know who Ozil was. They would know what Arsenal does. So that's really helpful. Um, so they play a football. But I think that um, most of my colleagues in the game here would agree we have got way, way too far away from the technical. Technical is not sexy. So it's very hard to explain to a group of grassroots coaches that you need to spend a ton of time in technical repetition and good physical behaviors like position of the plant foot and position of the, 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 the non-kicking foot, um, sorry, the plant foot, um, position of the head. Uh, balance and things like that. It's just very difficult to sell. Everybody wants to leap straight to the game. And how do I have you to ask a question opponent. on that? Do you yeah. think that a lot of that is everyone wanting to move to that side of the game because maybe they don't understand that side of the game enough? I mean, certainly from my experience, um, you know, it has some controversial moments with some of the courses I've delivered. Um, let's just say that. Uh, where there's a discussion that's taken place between me and me and a learner or, or, or on many occasions and different learners in fact where I have to always challenge them around what they're doing um, on the why of what they're doing and they're saying to me you know sometimes they say oh yes uh, you know I'm trying to get this um, but it's not quite working and I say okay well do you actually understand what is required in order to get that to work um, if that makes sense. I left off. Um, so, just touching, obviously, then I've got a few learners who I maybe they come across sometimes, and we have that conversation around what they're trying to achieve. Um, and the question I always ask, okay, so if the players aren't able to achieve what you're trying to get them to draw the, the outcome you want them to, what is it that you say to them? Um, and I, I'll give you, a, you know, a very, a very basic example of and it rings rings a bell. Is uh, you know, I wanted them to press in a certain way. Okay, well. What exactly did it look like, you know, and what did you want them to do that, uh, that they weren't doing in that respect? Um, and he goes, oh, they were just they just weren't pressing in the way I wanted them to. Okay, well, what did you want them to do exactly? And I think sometimes, especially at the early stages, certainly from my experience dealing with level ones and level two learners in, in particular, they may be looking too much on the surface and not actually understanding actually whatever it is that you want them to achieve, there is a process you need to be aware as the coach what that process actually looks like or you can never really understand where the breakdown is um so it's 
having that conversation sometimes you know so what did you say when it went when it didn't quite go to plan well i told them i wanted them to press properly up what does press properly actually mean and i think mm-hmm. it's just really picking at that scab again and again before they understand actually i don't know what it looks like i don't well, know there's, yeah there's a lot isn't there there's a lot of information about how you check for understanding um so a particular word like pressing could mean two different things to kids um and very often we might start the question you know yes why did you do that and it it might be a a, a perfectly well-intentioned question but as soon as i put the why proposition in Mm -hmm. there you think you've done something wrong yeah so i I think sometimes you can say ask i think intelligent questioning so what did you see when their kid had the ball on the top of his box right i saw what did you see and if the kid says i saw that he could pass it outside okay how could we stop him passing outside you've got to get press right so sometimes um the coaches are quite they're quite poor because they have a very good idea of what they want and they can't express it Uh Um, and then sometimes they ask for things which are simply not logical or sensible right so the coach in this example does he know how to help the kid approach the player with the ball to get their head down does he know the body shape that he would like the kid to be in? And if the kid can deny the pass or maybe intercept the pass or tackle, do they know how to do that? And I think for grassroots coaches, um, training is not particularly sexy. Um, the game is what they want to do. They want to get to the game very quickly. And then training, technical stuff in, in training. Um, sometimes it can be tough on the players, but that's because you you're not a very effective coach of technical so you set up drills as opposed to activities and exercises i think there's a big distinction between a drill and an an activity um and then you know kids will turn around and say well i don't want to do this when can we when when in america when can we scrimmage well you always have the payoff of the game at the end but some attention to detail and skill acquisition um absolutely needs to be in the the it needs to be there for the grassroots coach and too often they want to tell you about the formations they played unfortunately definitely and i you know just the question there for you and i'm not sure what the i guess the the content is like in the courses that you guys have over there in particular but certainly over recent years um the fa has gone through a lot of restructuring in terms of what their courses look like um, i'm sure you've had discussions with people within the fa around that stuff um in terms of it's now much more a holistic approach across all the stuff that they're doing. Um, this is just my opinion anyway. Um, and uh, I guess a less emphasis on that technical, tactical stuff. Um, not to say that it's not important or it's not still as important, um, but maybe certainly from a, a coach education perspective in terms of the tutor-led elements of the course, there's less emphasis on that aspect of things um, from my, my opinion. What would your advice be to those coaches who are maybe coming onto the courses? Because let's let's be honest, traditionally, any coaches that are coming onto the UA for B, UA for A, um, you know, myself and Ben have both gone onto those those courses, and we've you know we've, we've done those courses ourselves. General consensus is we're coming onto this course we want to really get that technical tactical content that the, the I guess the coach educators or the tutors, whatever you may like, um, are going to be sharing with us and imparting their knowledge onto us from that perspective, but. Um, with the way things have transitioned now in terms of the approach, there maybe is less emphasis on that or less likelihood of that actually happening as it would have previously. 
what would your advice be to those coaches who maybe trying to step out and maybe develop their understanding of those aspects of the game? Yeah, I, I do worry. Um, we had a, an article here, um, and it was an, it was a it was a negative article about academy soccer, and it suggested that it was so homogenous, and it was called the the boxer the academy soccer player the boxer who's never been hit, right? And so extrapolate that out into the coaching world. So I've got a beautiful notepad and notebook, and I've written it all down. I've got all the video technologies. And I've actually never stepped on a grass field with a ball rolling and watched two kids run into each other. So somewhere in all of this, you have to have an innate, an in, uh, innate love and sense of the game. If you haven't played it or been a fan of it and, and been around it, I believe you can become a pretty effective coach with a UA for B, right? Because they might not ask you to play. And they might show you pretty much what they want you to replicate in your assessment and you're good at copying, you can do it. Um, but for me, um, when I'm working with the coaches in the coach education, and that's not to say I'm not prepared to give a coach who has taken the highest level course who happens to be a full-time lawyer. I'm not I'm more than prepared to give them the award if they've achieved it, if they're just if, if they're literally a lawyer and they do this on the side. But the ones that I'm gonna bring into my staff are people that that are interested in player development, technical development, um, modern in innovations in the game. They like watching soccer, football for fun. They'll as much sit down and chat with some sugar packets and do formations with you. So it's quite difficult because there are a lot of opportunities, but at the end of the day, football, the ball rolls and there are four kids on either side or 11 kids on either side. And there will be room for analysts and things like that that aren't into that part and that space. Um, but I, I still, I, I think we, we, do, we don't have enough football in some of the awards now because we're too busy trying to cram in a lot of really important content, but maybe at the expense of the, of the football side of it sometimes. It's a, very, it's a very difficult balance, right? Because the criticism previously would have been it was all on the field, it was all grids and 10 yard grids and it was really the domain of only football people and typically ex-pros so you can go way too far the other way um that's why uh particularly the scottish uh, malky mckay actually is interestingly in charge of the uh, high performance but greg patterson and andy gould run the uh, scottish fa coach ed and to my mind I, they do a really good job of the balance between football and all of the other necessary skills be you grassroots. So I've got a lot of time for the Scottish FA amongst others. Ian, are they, have they got you on their books? You've been plugging them a lot in there. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> they got a nice hotel at Harriet Watt though. And I do get, they do buy me the occasional cocktail. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, just, no, just but, but I will say, cause I did my badge. I did my badges with the English FA. Yeah. And then, um, Oh gosh. Jamie Houchin and those guys, and then a little bit later, uh, J uh, Jamie Robinson and Jeff Pike. And now I, I see Tony McCallum every year because he comes over with a group of, of uh, coaches. Um, they have, obviously, the English FA has a ton of changeover, but I, I think um, certainly Wales, Scotland, and England particularly, they do a really, really good job. Um, the DFB was a really interesting one to go with, yeah. much more, uh, not quite as warm fuzzy, <laughs> 
especially to an Englishman. But the German, the German one was a very good course I did as well. Brilliant. And, you know, just kind of just touching within that, having experienced all those different courses and, you know, even been as a coach as you care for the length of time you have, what would you say one of your biggest bugbears is when it comes to coaching? Um, at all levels, when the coach at the end of the, when you, when you cut the coach won't talk about his or her athletes with a, with a slightly, um, greater understanding of them than in their rank within the team. So, um, coaches, which coaches who focus at the, with the star player on the top end of the squad and don't have a great appreciation of all the way through. Um, I was really, I was really struck and disappointed. I was with a Premier League club uh, a number of years ago, and they have a very, very, very fine academy. And I asked them, how often does the boss from the first team come down to watch? And they said, never. And it occurred to me that the power of the first team manager driving his Aston Martin across the academy training ground once a week and just looking out the window would have an amazing impact on the club and the, the, the situation. So I don't know about that particular individual. But I, I think, um, you know, I'm sure you guys have met, you maybe even have them as guests, coaches who've never lost a game, right? Somebody lost it for them, the players, the weather, the referee, they've never lost a game. Um, and we do it by percentage in this country. So basically you're batting a 1,000 because you've won every game. I have no time for that anymore. Um, there was a time when I wanted to be one of those coaches who won every game and didn't lose one. But for me, um, and it, it's obviously harder at the highest professional level because that is about entertainment. And it's different, right? And so you un we understand when grassroots coaches mess up sometimes because the images they see are of Wenger and Ferguson or Mourinho and having to go at Andre Villas-Boas and you map that back into grassroots football and that so what, what what is the image right for the grassroots coach what do they what is the, what can they model off of and you should absolutely not model off of the English Premier League um, so can you can you express care and interest in the kids or in your players and I think you can do that at most levels of the game so one of the nice things in my situation is coaching a lot of college players. I go to a lot of weddings now and we have a lot of fun at those weddings of younger guys I coach, but we don't tend to talk about wins and losses. We talk about bus trips and silly things that happened. And that might be very warm fuzzy, but I believe you can win more games if you express humanity. And I believe that you can win games with no humanity, but I don't believe it's sustainable. So for me, what's a challenge about coaching what disappoints me is when we don't express enough humanity in it that's kind of long-winded but that's what i think no i completely agree with you um there i guess like uh, what people and um, coaches especially starting like to do is that they kind of glamorize football a lot <laughs> and like they only look at the top end but there's a lot of tough tough moments that um will happen like across the season where like if you don't have that sort of connection um, with the players or the players have connections with each other like that, it'll be really hard for them to kind of navigate through that. And well, if, you, if you have grassroots coaches on, on the show, this would be my challenge to them, right? If you've got a particularly talented kid, scores all your goals, 
to some extent, he or she is taken care of. They're, they know they're do it being successful. They know that. There's some adulation. You're playing them a lot. So now go down, look at the bench, the third or fourth string kid that you can barely get in. And if you metaphorically put your arm around them, because um, you, you can't obviously do that uh, physically, and, and I'm not suggesting that, but and say, you know, I think, Yaz, I think you're doing really well. I've seen improvement in these areas. You're a real joy to have. And I think next year you might get some more playing time or the, 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 I think we all, we can all probably find a place in our, uh, in our experiences where that happened, where somebody expressed some care and interest in you that was not based on your ability to kick a ball. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity for a coach. And I think that that kid that I spoke to will become a better player for it. And who knows down the line, it might be a better player I need. So I think there's a really, I could appeal to you just in your own self-interest to be more humane because why taking care of the top one to some extent is already done. And it's those other 13, 14 that need a little bit of encouragement occasionally. No, definitely. I agree. Um, just in regards to that, like, um, you know, having, you know, you're talking about the struggles of players, but like coaches go through their struggles as well. And um, in particular to you, like, what has been like the sort of like biggest challenges that you have faced in your coaching journey? And what have you learned from that? Yeah, I think, um, I think coaching can be lonely, uh, especially when you're the head coach, right? Um, you can have as many assistants as you want and all that, but I think it can be lonely. And I had an experience when I was a, a young coach that um, I, I don't quite have to share. So a number of years ago, I was an assistant coach at a big prestigious university here. I came home one night and my wife at the time, who I'm still very friendly with, but we're, not, we're no longer married, um, she was sitting in, in the living room or the dining room. I was sitting in the living room, open plan house. And I, was, I cracked a beer and I was watching uh, Green Bay Packers play the Chicago Bears. And I was not in a good mood. And she said to me, you know, what's up? And I said, just a shitty day at work with the team. Um, that's it, nothing, nothing personal. She said, well, what can I do? And I said, no, don't worry about it. When I come home like this, just leave me for half an hour and I'll be fine, which was, was the interaction. And here's what I just told the person that loved me most in the world, you can't help me, right? So there you are as the coach and you've internalized it and you've personalized it all so much and you don't think anybody else can possibly understand and probably they can't understand the same way you can, but they might, they might give you some comfort Right. They might be you might want to go over and ask your partner how he or she is doing today, not just because you lost the game and you're going to play a game the next day or two weeks later and you're going to win and you're going to be cock a hoop. So one of the things, um, one of the challenges for me, which continues to today when I'm doing coaching education and I'm doing shows and things is is um, self-awareness and, and perspective. Um, and, and, you know, when we're dealing with things that have just happened in this country with George Floyd, and then before that COVID, th this is really a good time, right? To take store a little bit and say there are more important things than life than, than wins and losses. And, and interestingly, the most important thing in coaching for most of us is actually the people we work with, not the wins and losses. So, um, yeah, maintaining, maintaining balance in my life remains a challenge even today, Ben. You touch on that, you know, obviously maintaining that, that, that balance in your life uh, remains a challenge. Do you feel that there's any 
practical steps that you've pulled out of that experience that are helping you get closer to, I guess, reaching that balance? Yeah, um, I definitely think, um, in, in my case, uh, exercise, um, uh, reading, um, but trying to take, trying to get away from football occasionally, which is really difficult when you do what I do for a living and you love watching football anyway. Um, but I, I, I like to read quite a bit and it's just a thing that I do. I, again, I think, but I think having, having another interest that you can fit in, um, what's very big in this country, and I didn't really understand it until I did a little bit more research, um, but service, right? So now in liberal arts schools in America, very often the students do service projects. I, I've done a number of different service projects using football or not using football. Um, so we've got a neighbor and we do the grocery shopping for her because she doesn't want to go down to the grocery store because of COVID right now. It's a very small thing, but it's completely outside of my professional life. And it makes me appreciate my good fortune and maybe some of the challenges of other people. So I think, um, I think having other interests, and then I do think occasionally doing some sort of service initiative, and that doesn't have to cost you money. It probably just costs you a couple of hours, right? So you go volunteer at a pet shelter and take the dogs for a walk, or you, you, get, your, you get your team, your grassroots team together, and you go down to a local park and you pick up all the, the rubbish. That's a service project. And also very powerful for your athletes, right? Because on this particular day, we're not gonna do football training. We're gonna go and clean up the park where we wanna train. I think those types of things have helped me a lot. And I'm not particularly God-fearing or any great philanthropist or anything like that. It's just a few things that just help me, help me personally maintain balance. Brilliant. And you just talked there about, you know, uh, being able to learn and take away things from that experience. Just be conscious, to, uh, you know, to kind of move your attention to potentially any maybe mentors, influences you've had in your journey um, to date. Um, over the years, you know, it's been, a, I guess, a long career for you so far, and hopefully, a, a many, a many more years to come. Um, you don't look a day over thirty, and yeah, there uh, you go. <laughs> but um, in particular, is there any particular mentors or people in your in your journey that have, have been really key figures for you? Um, could be coaching specific, or it might be people that are away from you know. This, a lot of the lessons that we can learn are transferable at times. Um, yeah. And what would be well, men mentorship? Really, I'm really interested in mentorship because, in most cases, certainly in my case, there was no formal relationship. I didn't go to the person and say, "Will you be my mentor?" Or they came. And there's actually some research that says those very formal relationships are actually less effective than the slightly more organic ones. Um, but sort of to name drop, I had a really nice experience when I was at, at college. Because Dave Sexton, who was a legendary football coach, coach Man United, was England under 23 manager and won back-to-back -back European championships when I was at college. He lived three miles away in Kenilworth. So he would jog down and he would coach his football. So we were getting coached by an England manager and he was just doing it for fun. Um, my first year at Warwick, I found out that he was doing an open university degree in uh, philosophy, politics and economics. So I said to this England manager, would you like to come and sit in my freshman classes with me? And he came in with me. And then subsequently I went over to his house and saw all of his pictures of Joe Jordan and all the greats. And um, he and I became friends. So that was, really that was a really interesting uh, sort of name drop. 
but there wasn't there wasn't any formal mentorship it was just being around a, a football great when you're in your early 20s that was kind of star-studded um when i came over here um a number of coaches uh saw me working and playing uh senior coaches and said we'd like to have your playing expertise on our coaching staff or your coaching expertise and so they gave me opportunities and pretty much to a man because it was all men um the handful of coaches that have helped me in my career have never had a problem with me doing very very well so um i'm quite excited to work with young coaches now that if things go well for them they'll have a better career than me they'll make more money than me they'll have more opportunity than me because most of the guys that gave me my opportunities i have exceeded not in terms of wins and losses but i've exceeded the opportunities i've exceeded the compensation um and that i think is the mark of a of somebody to look up to and, and respect is if they are very happy for you to not only i mean I think about this a lot with, with parenting. I don't have any kids myself, but I think about my mum and dad and how tough it was at times for them. Neither of them went to university. When I went to university, there was a lot of tension. They thought I was kind of disrespectful and snotty. And I was like, well, I went to university. In hindsight, I appreciate they worked really hard to give me a better opportunity than the ones they had because they were born right, at the, right in the middle of the Second World War. Um, so in, in my career now, and this is why um, when, when people ask to come on a, a, a podcast or somebody writes me a quick email for advice, I'm very happy to help because there were plenty of people around when I was there that helped me and they never did so with the what's in it for me. And I think sometimes if we can lose that what's in it for me in this incredibly messed up world that we live in, um, you can become quite an effective mentor and you can learn from people that have that spirit. And just on that then, so coming back to your own mentors, what would you say some of the biggest lessons, if there, if there was some that you can kind of pick out off the top of your head, would have been for you? Um, well, definitely in the, in the guys I'm thinking of, um, primarily American, so your audience wouldn't know them, um, they paid their dues. They put in the hard work when it wasn't sexy in this country, where it was, um, it was low pay so they did more camps and clinics and coach education they really um they really barnstormed for the development and and growth of the sport and so i could definitely um possibly make a little bit more money and work a little bit less harder but i've still got a little bit of energy enthusiasm for it and um so the the, the primary quality i learned from all of them was pay it forward i think uh, again not necessarily in a formal sense but just by observation, um, how committed they were to the game and how, mu how much they were willing to sacrifice while still making a living in it, for sure. Brilliant. And then, you know, just kind of, to kind of lead on from that then, you know, if we could go back um, not too long ago, like I said, you don't look a day over 30 right now, um, take it back to your own coaching journey and the start of that journey. If you had an opportunity yeah. to go back to those years and back to that day one where you've now decided actually I'm going to take a step and go down the coaching ladder knowing what you know now what would be one key message you'd want to give Ian Barker of that time uh, so you're 22 23 right so there's probably advice you give 22 23 year old is stop and smell the roses occasionally 
don't just be go, 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 go. So reflection. I mean, I would, I would love to have kept a journal of some sort, I think, to see what a complete, uh, forgive me, novet I probably was at times and, and how, how poor, poor my perspective was. But I didn't even take the time to do that. So there was no self-awareness. Um, so, so definitely, I mean, and, and as you guys can appreciate, right? So you've done your A-levels and you've gone to university. So you weren't, you, you weren't, you were, you were a thoughtful person, but you're so busy, go, go, go. Um, so yeah, so definitely uh, stop and reflect. That would be the number one thing. And, and it's hard to do when you're younger, but the quicker you get into that habit, um, and I think I'm sort of just personally innately prone to that. So that's good. So I probably got there quicker than some. And of course, there are a majority of the coaches I set out with on my path um, aren't in the game anymore and um, have not, you know, continued to be connected or be successful. And I think in part that was because it was all about the next thing and the next paycheck and who can you screw over to get that next paycheck. And eventually, you know, we, the, the three of us have a number of shared acquaintances, right? So if, if I, if I was, if you, if the three of us had a negative interaction, then that's going to go back into our friends in football and it's not going to serve as well. Um, so yeah, ref, self-reflection. And then kind of just, you know, moving on now, you know, we're now in 2020, COVID-19 and whatnot. Um, Director of Coach Education. But what's next for Ian Barker? Um, I would like to finish my career um, in, a, in a youth development academy. Um, ideally in the MLS, because I love the idea that the kids don't have to pay. That would be my ideal. I'd like to coach maybe the 12 to 14 year old ages. I'd like to get paid for it, but don't have to get paid as much as the guy coaching the, 40, the 15, 16s. And I'd like, I have a very romantic notion of pulling up to an academy clubhouse and there being four other cars that I pull in next to that all do the same job as me. Because uh -huh. um, you don't, one of, the, one of the challenges is, right, you don't, you have peers, but not like lateral peers in the work environment. Because I'm the director of coaching. I've got one other colleague who lives in a different state. And then all my other colleagues are independent contractors. So I don't really... I mean, unless I get to chat with somebody from the FA or Greg Patterson. Um, so that would be a nice thing for me to finish my career, I think. Okay, well, when you've got that set up, um, two of those coaches will be myself and Ben, hopefully. That's no problem, yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> um, just, you know, as we start to wind down now. If, um, if Beckham wants us down in, uh, into Miami, that'd be nice. So Let's, so let's do it, let's do it. There you go. Um, I'm sure if we'll we must, if we must. <laughs> Between our acquaintances, I'm sure we can uh, try and struggle something together there. Um, no, you know, just as we start to wind down now, you know, it's been a fantastic discussion so far. And, you know, there's lots of key insights and lots of, uh, I guess, takeaways and golden nuggets, certainly for myself and Ben. And I'm sure there will be for the listeners and viewers of this uh, episode as well. If you had now 60 seconds to kind of package away one golden nugget, and obviously I know you've touched on a brief message that you might want to give yourself at 22, 23, um, you know, it's not far to think about eight years, but um, if you had 60 seconds now to package a golden nugget for the listeners, what would that be? Yeah, um, don't take yourself too seriously. 
um, get the qualifications and put the time in there for sure. And then there is this um, philosophy of dynamic change, right? It says that if you stand in the Thames today and you stand in the Thames tomorrow, it's the same river, it's the Thames, but the water is obviously shifted by 24 hours, right? And so if you're not continually aware of things shifting and moving, you get left behind. And so I think about the people that want to write the book on how to play like Barcelona. And by the time it's published, everybody wants to play like Bayern Munich, right? Or everybody wants to play like Man City. So um, I believe in the qualifications. Absolutely. Because I think that's a, a standard that shows that you're serious. I don't believe in these people that think they can, don't need them. Just go get them. And then, then you can say you don't need them, but go get them. So qualifications, self-awareness, and uh, don't let the grass grow under your foot. Brilliant. Right, well, look, guys, you know, it's been a fantastic discussion, as I said, but Ian, I want to thank you again for your time this evening um, or this afternoon for you, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's been, a, again, really enjoyable one. Been able to, you know, explore your experience, your journey, your insights, both from a coaching capacity and the coach education capacity. Um, so thank you again for your time. Yeah, yes, you're welcome to share my email address uh, on your tweet, Twitter feeds or with this. So if people want to reach out, from anywhere in the, your listeners are no problem. Well, we're, we're going to get onto that in a second. So okay. there you have it, guys. You know, it's been an fantastic discussion again today. Um, some brilliant insights, golden nuggets, and plenty of take, plenty for everyone to take away and apply. Um, I just want to say thanks again for tuning in as usual. Uh, I've been joined by my co-host Ben and our very special guest, Director of Coaching um, for the US uh, Soccer's Soccer Coach Association, Ian Barker. Uh, thank you again, Ian. But on that note, um, Ian, social media, email, if you could uh, just let listeners where they could get in touch. Yeah, so I, um, I maintain an enthusiasm for Twitter. So that is iBarker at uh, iBarker Soccer. iBarker Soccer. Um, the company is called, or the organization is unitedsoccercoaches.org. And my email address is iBarker at unitedsoccercoaches.org. I'm not that difficult to find, and I'm very happy if your listeners have questions that are specific to them or they want to follow up or take issue with any of this, they're very welcome to email me and I will reach back out. That's fantastic. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.